Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Let's begin. Caleb, how are you today? Pretty good. He's not. Caleb's not feeling great, but we're doing a podcast anyway because we like to do it and because we would miss you if we didn't do it. You know, you could have done the podcast by yourself today and I'd be interested to hear what that sounds like. Maybe we'll only submit one track to recording or to uh, editing. It'll just be, it'll be 45 minutes of me going, yeah. <laughs> oh, are you saying that I talk too much? No, I just respond to you most of the time. Oh, oh okay. You're, you're the fodder that keeps this going. Moving on. <laughs> I didn't mean to call you fodder. Thanks. <laughs> Hello, Mutta. Hello, fodder. I'm excited about today's show, Caleb. Today we're talking about... Why are you excited about today's show? Oh, were you well, telling me? Yeah. I'm excited because we're having a drink that I have never had before until we started doing a podcast about cocktails. And we're talking about a, a topic that, that can get me a little bit fired up, that I'm not an extreme expert about, but I get passionate about it. So I'm excited to talk about that, too. We're talking about the Tom Collins. Mm -hmm. That's the cocktail of choice, which actually, I don't know, it's debatable if this is a cocktail or not. Just ask the boy. We'll get into that. But it is a mixed drink. It is. We've done some of those on this program. On this program. It's gin-based, and we love gin. So I'm pumped about that. We're also talking about trusts and why you probably don't need one. Yeah. We see a lot of them, don't we? Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about trusts. Hopefully, we can dispel some of those today and really have a decent conversation that's hopefully educational as well as entertaining. We've been uh, calling people out in the past couple of weeks. I guess we're just going to keep going with that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we got a lot of problems with you got- people, and you're <laughs> going like, to hear about it's it. It's like Festivus. All right. So uh, the Tom Collins, I thought I've had this drink before. Turns out I have not. I thought I made one a few weeks back, but then uh, reading some of the controversy, it turns out I was drinking something entirely different. So if you've listened to this podcast for very long, you're going to go, boy, these guys, they're trying a bunch of new stuff for the first time on the podcast. That's true, because we are financial planners first (laughs) and mixologists way more than second. (laughs) Yeah, it's down there a ways. Yeah. We're not very good at it. But we really like it. Yeah. So the drink that we mix up today is a, it's a pretty standard boilerplate kind of a recipe. I'm not even going to credit it to anybody because they all kind of, unless you go way, way back, uh, resemble this recipe. So we have one and a half ounces of gin, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, and club soda to finish. What you're going to do is you're going to build this cocktail inside of a cocktail shaker. You're going to shake briefly with ice and strain into a Collins glass, and then you're going to top it off with some club soda. And if you'd like, garnish it with a cherry or an orange slice. We did not. I'm not sure how that would change it. The cherry seems a little bit weird in this kind of a drink, but we haven't done cherries and gin drinks. Boy, not that I can think of. Mm. I'm sure that would that would taste great. I think if you put a cherry in there or an orange slice, it would change the flavor quite a bit. Yeah, I think it would. And then you'd have more of a more of a punch. Yes. Well, there's part of the controversy, isn't it? Let's get right into that. Caleb. So maybe what we're drinking isn't controversial at all. <laughs> maybe not. We can make it controversial. I think the main thing to to keep in mind is do what you enjoy, drink what you like. There's no judgment here. Just make sure that you do it responsibly. So did you read about any controversy on the Tom Collins, Jason? I know I did. Yeah, of course. Like every good mixed drink, people are fighting over who owns it, who invented (laughs) it, and when it happened. But really, uh, the Tom Collins isn't even the first name, the real first name of this drink. Uh Is that a way to say it? This is a John Collins that has been transformed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. John Collins was supposedly the first name of the drink. That's, I read that same thing, so me, it must me, be true. Let me do this quick. I, I just I went to David Wonders because I have his did. book imbibe, and it's great. He actually has a book called Punch, which is about punches, and he wrote a lot more about the Tom Collins and the John Collins in that, or affectionately known as the Collins twins, those two drinks. Um, but he wrote quickly in this. He basically says, I delved into the origins and early history of this Prince of Long Drinks. The Tom Collins is the prince of long drinks, according to Wonder. <clears throat> so is a long drink, uh, is that basically like what we have in the highball glass here? Yeah. Like a tall Yeah, tall in, a, in a large bar glass or a Collins glass, okay. is usually called now. I think that's what he means. But he goes, he goes, he delved into it in his book, Punch. So here's the abridged version. 
<clears throat> New York, Stephen Price, the theatrical manager, gin punch drinker, cold soda water in his pleas, moves to London, manages the Garrett Club, actors, royals, other celebrities, his punch catches on, John Collins, head waiter, Limmer's Hotel makes a version, his version makes him famous, his clientele runs to admirals and baronets, dukes and generals, they spread the drink around the world. Boom. That's that's how it happened. It kind of sounded like one of those uh, History Channel World War II documentaries. Dateline in 1876. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. I read some things uh, kind of along the same lines there um, with the punch or the fizz. What was this drink really classified as? Not really a cocktail. I, I go back to Savoy a lot. I know you, you look at Wondrich, which I, he's always entertaining. Savoy's got the, the Savoy cocktail book going back to like 1930. So some of these old school recipes, we'll, we'll look at Savoy. Although, as it turns out, a lot of those are uh, ripped off recipes. Yeah, I Savoy think. was just stealing from people. <laughs> Every time we look stuff up, it's like Savoy's like, yeah, 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 I invented that. That was me. It, there, there's a cool website out there called Savoy Stomp, and uh, it's some people going through the Savoy cocktail book and trying stuff and, and uh, going way deeper into the history and controversy on these drinks. And basically what they said is, this is a gin fizz. It's basically a gin fizz. There's a couple of differences because the ingredients are all the same. The glass being one, the Collins glass. And really, I think what makes the difference is the ingredients are the same, but there's a difference in how much club soda goes into that. So a higher gin concentration would make it a fizz. A higher club soda concentration would make it um, a Collins. Uh, the fact that it's built in a glass would make it a fizz versus this was built in a shaker, making it a Collins. I, it's it's semantics, but I, I think it has to do with concentration of club soda versus gin. The recipes are the same. When I looked at that, though, I thought, well, wait a minute. As I'm making this cocktail, it's a lot like a mojito. Except for lemon juice instead of lime, and we're skipping the mint. Yeah, it's really similar. I think the mojito probably came much after the the John and Tom Collins. No, we did the mojito episode, and it was from the 1500s. What? The mojito was? The mojito was, yeah. It was like... How do I not even remember that? It was weeks ago. Did they even have club soda then? They had soda water of some sorts. I don't know. Hey, Jason, I'm going to refer you back to the mojito episode. I bet the technology wasn't nearly as advanced as it is now for putting soda and water anyway semantics um the bartender's guide's another one uh that we might consult from 1905 by charlie mahoney he uses lime juice instead in his tom collins which really makes us a mojito without mints without mint leaf yeah mint mints mint leaves yeah <laughs> definitely not mints that'd be a weird drink wouldn't it yeah yeah jerry thomas actually with this collins drink listed a couple variations he has a whiskey version and a brandy version mm-hmm. of it too so just like any any other cocktail, it's the base. The basics are all the same. Uh, you got you got different ingredients. More of the more of the uh, debate that I found was about whether this is a, a cocktail or a punch mm-hmm. at all, and that kind of comes down to the fizz versus the what was the other one you said? Collins. Oh, it being I guess a, col- a Collins really is kind of a. Uh, it's just how much soda water you put in uh-huh. is what their debate is about. Yeah. Well, boys, I I think you just put in however much you like. Season then, to taste. Then call it the Caleb's drink number three. <laughs> number three, yeah. <laughs> yeah, some of the history on the uh, the John Collins and uh, the Tom Collins thing was interesting, though, how the name switched. You mentioned Old Tom Jen, and there was some pretty fun stuff out there on Old Tom Jen, too, and, and how that came to popularity mm-hmm. in England. And um, then there was something called the Tom, the Tom Collins hoax of 1874. Tell me about this. In 1874, uh, in New York, Pennsylvania and elsewhere in the United States, there was a conversation starter. Have you seen the Tom Collins? Sorry, have you seen Tom Collins? And after the listener predictably reacts by explaining they don't know who Tom Collins is, the speaker would assert that Tom Collins was around talking about that listener to other people and saying, he's just around the corner. It was an old practical joke. They used Tom Collins (laughs) as the name to mess with people. Here's David Wondrich on that. It sounds moronic, <laughs> uh, but judging from newspaper accounts of the hijinks that ensued, only a few of them fatal. It worked. <laughs> People that had never heard of Tom Collins or John Collins uh, started knowing about the drink, so it got famous. Interesting. So after stabbing a man around the corner, you say, I'm sorry, I thought you were Tom Collins. Yeah, I was just trying to kill Tom Collins for <laughs> saying mean things about me. Uh, ridiculous. So I, I didn't know anything about the Tom Collins oak hoax of 1874 that's hilarious i don't know anything else interesting that you pulled out Uh, i i go back to jerry thomas generally when there's controversy you know looking at his recipe 
five or six dashes of gum syrup, which I think is a f- kind of simple a syrup. it's simple syrup, right? It's just a specific kind. Juice of a small lemon. He says a large wine glass of gin. <laughs> yeah, a large wine gla- glass would be I like three ounces. If okay. I'm not mistaken. So about double the gin. Shake up well and strain into a large bar glass. Fill up with plain soda water. Drink it while it's lively. I could see doing a more gin-heavy version of this. Now, we're drinking it. It's the first time I've had one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very reminiscent of a gin and tonic because you taste the gin. You've got some bubbly liquid in there. It's and thinned lime. out quite a bit. You know, there's citrus. But it's definitely different. And like my wife does not like tonic water at all. God bless her. There's a lot of great aspects that she has (laughs) liking tonic water she doesn't like gin and tonic because of the tonic water so a tom collins is something that's more up her alley so i I bet there's a lot of people out there that have an aversion to tasting whatever that taste you would call uh that's the quinine yeah whatever that i don't know like bitter i don't don't know what it's yeah quinine 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 it's (laughs) whatever that is so it's really similar to that and my i i get that it's a lot closer to gin and tonic to me than to a mojito it's good. It's a refreshing, light drink. I bet you if we used fancier gin, and we don't have old Tom gin, so maybe it's not a true Tom Collins. but It's just a John Collins, then. I think a John Collins might have been with Brandy. Actually. What uh, do you have? I read that there were some different iterations. Oh, my John goodness. John Collins was originally just Holland gin. Holland. I, I don't know anything about Holland gin. I don't know if it's still around. I don't either. I think I read that, too, now that you brought that up. Holland's mm-hmm. is the John Collins. Well, we should try this with different gins, possibly. I'm for it. And we'll see if it's different. I bet you a more complicated gin would pop out more than, what do we use? Tanqueray? Tanqueray. Yeah. Just a basic Although London that's, dry gin. Although, it's funny that you say that because something else I read said that Old Tom gin is not around anymore, but there's a lot of companies who are mimicking the recipe. Oh, yeah. Tanqueray was one of them. Now, I don't know if that means that they have a, a, a different line that's more... I bet it's called Tom Gin. I don't know. Do they have a Tanqueray out. Tom Gin? Probably because it was a, I don't know what it was. I, I've read about it a lot. There's a lot more. There are, there's a distinct taste difference. I don't know what it is because I haven't read that much about it. Well, let's just put it this way. Hopefully we know more about trusts than we know about Jen and Tom Collins. That is a low hurdle to clear. I think we're <laughs> going to be all right there. <laughs> okay. Well, what do you say? Uh, why don't we move it on to the trust conversation then? Yeah, let's talk about trust. Specifically, do you need a trust? Caleb, people hear all the time, or it's just common knowledge, or I don't know, common wisdom. The word on the street is that trusts are good. They will protect your assets. I hear that a lot. And uh, there's also a lot of attorneys that will convince, it seems like, anyone that they should get a trust. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. You and I have talked about this. And in the office, we've talked about a lot because invariably we'll run into somebody mm-hmm. that has a trust and we're like, what the heck is this thing here for? Yeah. W- what What's going on? And then and the client will say, well, it's to protect my money. And then we have to figure out you know, why or how it's working and all of that. And it, it just seems like most of the time folks don't need a trust when they have one. We want to talk about when you do need a trust, but also why you probably don't need a trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... It's a hot topic, Caleb, and we're not attorneys. We don't draw up trusts. We also don't charge to make them, so we have a little bit less of a conflict of interest talking about them, which is a lot easier for us to just hate on them. Uh, but do you, you run into trust too. What's what's usually the scenario? Who needs a trust? Well, if the first person that needs a trust is attorneys need trusts to keep the lights <laughs> on. <laughs> gotta get paid for something well yeah and i think that we're we're joking but we do see a lot of that where it just does seem like an attorney's in business to write trusts and collect a fee and move on Uh, when we ask clients why do you have this well it's to protect my assets in all fairness does it protect assets sure are there other ways to do that generally sure my first question is what is it protecting your assets from and that's where a lot of folks have a hard time explaining it and I think to give people a little charity on the topic, it's it's probate, I think, is what they're trying to protect the assets I, I from. think that's the number one, is to avoid probate. You and I both worked in banking before we got into the world of high finance. <laughs> I know that we have some uh, listeners out there who are in the banking business that are probably going, avoid probate? Well, we do that every day. You do. <laughs> 
You yeah. do. And, and there's a lot of simple ways to do that. So going back to what you said, really, what we want to kind of figure out is, do you really need to go through all the hassle and the expense of setting up a trust in order to do something that probably would take you five minutes at your financial institutions? Yeah, I think it really depends on how complicated your financial situation actually is to see if you really need one. And that varies. So this is this is not going to apply to every single person. We're going to use a lot of generalities. I think what we talk about is probably helpful to just say what we see typically. But first, let's talk about trusts and what they do, and specifically the kind of trusts we're going to talk about now. Mm-hmm. We already talked about avoiding probate. So how does a trust avoid probate? Well, yeah, a trust basically is going to... Uh, and we're for the most part here, I think... We're going to talk about living trusts for the most part. Yeah, let's let's constrain it to just the living trust. That seems to be the one that is oversold. Really, there's a lot of different trusts. And I think kind of like what you just said, the one that we see the most abused or, or oversold would be the living trust. I, I would say that a trust avoids probate in the same way that wills and beneficiaries uh, on accounts, or I, I should say POD or TOD, that's payable on death, transfer on death designations also avoid probate at financial institutions. So basically you're naming a beneficiary so the courts don't have to decide where funds are going. But, you know, like we just said, so there's there's other ways to do that, you know, a will mm-hmm. and setting up proper beneficiary designations. We encourage our clients when we get together for uh, annual reviews, at least once a year, let's double check those beneficiaries. That's what we're doing there is trying to avoid probate. Outside of that, I, I mean, Nothing fancy there with how it's getting around probate, unless I'm missing something. I think that's a good um, nutshell version of it. The other thing that trusts do, or the reason that people want to avoid probate, is because they want to keep their assets private. So another another big reason that folks will use the living trust or how they're sold to people is privacy. You don't want if you if you're if your estate is getting probated when you die. You don't want that to be a public record that you had, you know, how many of her acres of farm ground or you owned such and such amount of investment property or you had this many classic cars or, or whatever it is, some crazy guitar collection. And you want to keep that private. You don't want people to know that you are secretly super rich. Uh, a living trust is sold as a way to think, keep things kind of private because when it's probated, it, it is public record. And if it's owned by a trust, well, it, you the owner never died. It's a living trust. It's a separate entity. Basically, you created another being to have all your stuff. When you die. And when you die, it has all your stuff, and then it has rules for what happens to all your stuff. And like you said, a will does that. Transfer on death. Payable on death does that too. Um, But it doesn't do it privately. Well, those all do that. Those all do that privately. Yeah, looking at financial accounts and things like that, if... uh, if a grandparent passes away and you know that you're a beneficiary on a CD and you walk into the bank with a death certificate. They go ahead and take care of you based on the payable on death instructions on the account. That's not something that's public. It's got to go through the probate process through the courts in order for it to be a public thing. So yeah, setting up beneficiaries on an account, TODs, PODs, you're effectively doing the same thing. I think, Jason, where it gets a little bit more complicated is when you have more than just financial assets, and you were hitting on it before when you talked about farmland and classic car collection and rental properties and all that kind of stuff, you can't just slap a beneficiary on your, your guitar collection, right? right. I, I know I'm the beneficiary on your guitar collection. Just one of them. Oh, right. The one, <laughs> the one that matters. <laughs> That's right. So explain a little bit, I guess, the process or you know, is it valuable to have a trust in place for those types of assets? It can be. The bottom line really is there's a will is a lot easier way to like I, I I have the one guitar and I listed you as who gets that in my will. Thank you. And, you know, the, everything else, everything else is pretty simple, especially when you're married. I'm just you, waiting you for just you to kick it. off. <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting for someone to say, hey, Tom Collins around the corner just said something bad about you. It's and not worth that you much. You get shanked. <laughs> the sentimental value. Sorry to break your train of thought. Though. No, there's no, there's, <laughs> I, I don't want to get right into the cons of a trust or I, why I think they're bad. I want, I want to focus on the good parts, but yeah, a trust will do the same kind of thing. The trust could have instructions for what happens to my property. You could say who to distribute stuff to. It's just that you would have had to pay a lot of money to set the trust up and then yeah. you have to transfer all those assets into the trust. The trust owns it, not you. You have to fund the trust. Yeah. You have That's, to put the stuff in there. Right. 
just because you drop the document doesn't mean the trust is funded. So if you have properties, but the titles are not named in the trust, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> You're going to be probated and your will is going to be looked at one way or, or, or the other. I, I think what you said there was really important because we're not saying that you know an attorney might tell you that a trust will do X, Y, and Z. Yes, it will. But what they're not saying is, but it's not necessary. You can also do the same thing by not paying me, <laughs> not right? Paying, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and then maybe they would have to help. You're, so you're right. That's the, really what we're getting at when we're talking about living trust and why you probably don't need one. The reason you don't need one isn't because it's not good to say who your stuff goes to. The reason you probably don't need one is because there's easier and cheaper ways to do that mm-hmm. than setting up a trust. But we'll dive into those. Let me break down. I'm realizing that as we don't think that we're big trust experts here, we don't do it for a living. We know enough to be dangerous. Like the CFP uh, exam touches on it a little in the estate planning section, but it's not enough to have an exhaustive knowledge. I I joke it's it's a mile wide and two inches deep. Like I know about dozens of trust types that exist, but I don't know all the details. If that's how much we know, See, being around it all the time, our listeners probably know less. So I want to kind of say some basics about a trust. Like, what is a living trust? We, we kind of gave the breakdown of it, but there's some terms that you might hear thrown around that this will be helpful. So the, the a trust, like we said earlier, is just a legal way of holding, uh, managing, distributing your stuff. To be a trust, it has to have these four things. There must be someone who makes the trust, someone who creates it. That's the, the, the trustee, uh, or no, the, the trustor, or the, the grantor. Uh, I guess guarantor. I shouldn't say that because not all trusts are grantor trusts either. But No, but it's a trustor or a grantor, that sort of person. Uh, number two, there also has to be assets. You said you have to fund the trust. You can't just have a document that doesn't own anything. And I have seen that, by the way. It's a useless it, trust. We, we probably could get into, here's where we've seen trusts break down and not work. There's an example where I've seen someone pay an attorney to set up the trust and never actually do the things that are necessary. That's just, that stinks. Yeah, but it happens. Well, okay. So that's the second thing. There must be assets. And that's usually called the corpus, which is Latin for body. Could also be looked at as principle. Yeah. So if you hear that, there just has to be assets in the trust. That's called the corpus if you ever hear that. Number three, there must be someone who holds, manages, and distributes these assets. That person is the trustee. A lot of times the trustee and the trustor or the grantor are the same person in a living trust. But not not always. And the reason for that is because it's revocable. And I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, number four, the trust must have a purpose. <laughs> and so that's for who the trust is made for, which is usually the beneficiary. So the beneficiary is another party involved in the trust. So it's important to know that a living trust is revocable, which means it can be changed. It can be canceled. So the trustor transfers their assets into the trust. That's the trust corpus. They can change that. They can take the property back out. And they can move it around. They can do stuff with it. They still have the rights of ownership on it. Change beneficiaries. Yeah, which is really important for other things that we're going to talk about soon. Could it also be known as a revocable trust? <laughs> Maybe. We'll have to talk about how we pronunciate these things. <laughs> I usually say revocable. I think it's revocable. Revocable? Uh, revocable? Revocable? I revocable? Know. So usually in a living trust, Caleb, the trustee... The trustor and the beneficiary are all the same person. Yep, usually. So that's that's your that's your basic crash course on a living trust. Hopefully it's helpful and you didn't fall asleep. While we're on that topic, how does that differ from most of your financial accounts? It's a really good question. There's corpus. The owner is the same as the beneficiary is the same as the... Really, it's the same thing. The funds are there for the benefit of the owner until they die, in which case it passes on to another beneficiary, which is the way that trusts are worded as well. So yeah. what I'm getting at is, in most cases, a living trust, it's looked at almost the same way that an individual is. In fact, the TIN number, the taxpayer identification number, is the same as the social security number for the person starting the trust. Yeah, almost always. It's, it's simple. You basically created another you that's not really you. To hold all your stuff. Could be a formality. And, and it kind of is. So why do people do it? Good question. Why do people do it, Caleb? Well, it, we were making it sound really redundant. The obvious is they were sold or they were told they needed one. I do think that's the biggest reason. That's what I had down. <laughs> so I, I've heard through like CE, that's continuing education, through some of those events, seminars, things like that. I, I've heard 
you know, all across the board guidelines on who needs a trust. I've, I've heard some attorneys come in and, and do these uh, CE events and say, everyone needs a will and everyone needs a trust and everyone needs a, a medical power of attorney. Now, I would agree with the will and the medical power of attorney probably, but everyone needs a trust, really. I've heard other people say, look, if you got $100,000 in assets, you should probably have a trust. And I've heard other people say, look, if, if you're uh, not in danger of hitting the estate tax levels, then you probably don't need to worry about it at all. Just title your accounts correctly. The truth has to be somewhere in the middle, right? A big issue is a breach of fiduciary. I think there are some attorneys that make their living selling trusts when they're doing estate planning. I do think that's the main reason people have living trusts uh, because they think you know you have, everybody needs a will, everybody needs a power of attorney, like you said, and everybody needs a trust. I don't think the trust thing is true. And uh, there are good points towards it. Nowadays, those points don't hold true. So as a fiduciary... Do you think that they're coming from the, we've talked about this before, almost like a suitability standard? Well, it's not hurting them. It's suitable. Is it the best thing for them? Now, I would argue no. And you, if you talk to a, a good attorney, they'll get a sour look on their face when they, you talk about living trusts and, mm-hmm. the kind, and who has them. And they're like, ah. These other attorneys are just selling live in trust because they needed more more fees, yeah. and and they it's not like they position it bad. They're not they're not like saying things that are untrue necessarily, but they say things like probating an estate is a pain in the butt, and it's expensive, and you don't want the court looking over your shoulder the whole time. True, and you don't want your private affairs out in public. True, all good points. That's good. Uh, and then they say that if you avoid probate, you won't be as aggravated. Things will be better. Also, they'll help avoid things like conservatorship, mm-hmm. guardianship. That kind of stuff is already set up. And you won't have to deal with the courts and lawyers. And everybody hates that if you have a trust. Not any of that is untrue. It's just that there's a better way to probably do it. And they're not going to tell you about that because you can do it on your own. Or if you've got a good financial advisor, they'll probably be able to do it for you as a part of what they're already charging you. And that, that's what we do here. So... I kind of feel like before, you know, I'm looking at our notes here a little bit and we've talked about um, what a trust does and we've talked about all those positive things that it does. We're kind of leading into the cons a little bit. Obviously, one of the big ones is cost. That's probably the biggest. Cost and hassle. You know, if you need to change something on a bank account or on your brokerage account or your IRA, it's pretty easy to talk to whoever's handling your finances and and change beneficiaries or or whatever. Not as easy with a trust, is it, Jason? No, you change ownership and then you have to amend the trust document. Like you want to change a beneficiary on the trust? Is that what you're Mm -hmm. you're getting at? Yeah. If you want to change what happens with your stuff, you have to amend the trust. So let's talk about a once a year occurrence when we meet with our clients and we update beneficiaries. Now make sure that your will and your trust reflects all these things as well, right? You go back to your attorney who drew up the trust and charged you. Are they going to do that for free, Jason? Or are we looking at recurring revenue for that attorney to keep amending and, and making changes to the trust document? Those are billable hours. So so yeah. we're not just talking about a one-time necessarily upfront cost. Yeah. Even though the one-time upfront, you know, that could be... I don't even know what they're going for. I guess it depends on the attorney. But you're talking at least hundreds of dollars, probably thousands of dollars to get the trust drawn up when it's free to change your beneficiaries at any time on bank accounts on investment accounts, on retirement accounts. And in depending on the state that you're in, you can put payable on death or transfer on death on deeds. Some states let you do it on cars. Mm-hmm. So you can even transfer property, like real property or property like a car outside of probate in some states. So it's worth looking into. It's just a lot easier and it's a heck of a lot cheaper. So we talked about cost being an issue. I think that's obvious. That's the first thing that comes to mind. We talked a little bit about trust having to be funded and executed properly to be effective anyway. And, you know, transferring deeds and titles and things like that. And as things change, it's cost to do those things over and over and over again. What about taxes, Jason? Any tax implications? To what trust? about taxes? I'll defer to you. You, you want to talk about taxes. I, I, I want to talk about hassle because I don't know. I don't, we talked about it a little because it's a headache to move. You ha- so we just alluded to changing beneficiaries on all your stuff and putting payable on death and transfer on death. You still have to do that same amount of paperwork to update your trust if you're funding the trust. So you moved all your assets to the trust. Now that's where we are. We, you opened a living trust and now you're moving all your assets to the trust. You're funding the trust. What are the tax implications, Caleb? 
So where I've seen, and this could become the section where we, we say, here's where we've seen trusts go bad. I mentioned a time where I saw someone who paid to have a trust set up and then they never moved stuff into the trust. It's, it's ineffective. It was an expensive document. And, you know, the attorney's not going to make sure that you do those things, by the way. Unless you pay them. Here's your document. <laughs> exactly. This kind of is all balled into one when we get into costs and taxes and all those kinds of things. Making a trust a beneficiary on an account, especially qualified assets, is where I've seen people run into big issues. Who's going to manage all that, by the way? Usually the attorney that drew up the trust, which means that they're going to charge a fee to administer that account after the fact. Jason, we've both seen this where it's really obvious what the attorney's doing. When, when a client comes in with their trust and they say, oh, we're making some changes to our beneficiaries. You know, my attorney said that we need to make the trust the beneficiary on this account. And we go, why? Why would we do this? So, Jason, let's let's walk through that. Let's say you have a million dollar IRA mm-hmm. and you've got your your brand new shiny trust. I know this is a long a, a long way to get to the tax implications, but you got your shiny new trust that you just paid, let's say, fifteen hundred dollars for. You want to use it. Mm-hmm. So you go to your financial advisor and you say, well, my attorney told me to put the trust as the beneficiary on this account. And maybe your financial advisor is an order taker and says, well, okay, there you go. You pass away. What happens with that million dollar IRA now, Jason? Well, now it needs to be legally distributed to your trust. Like you said, that's that's not going to be free. The attorney is going to charge to administer that, mm-hmm. to move the money over, to handle that IRA fund. Uh, and then you're going to have to follow the IRS rules for distributions from an IRA. Mm-hmm. And those inside a trust are really not beneficial. They are not favorable. Uh, when you take money out of an IRA, this is a traditional IRA in this example, it's taxed at ordinary income rates. And ordinary income rates for a trust are not the same as ordinary income rates for an individual. I think we enter into the highest bracket at about $12,000 in income. And that's about right now, that's 37%, I right. think. Yeah. So a 37% income tax for your trust taking distributions out of a traditional IRA that inherited. Also, you can take that account and funnel it to the beneficiaries, let's say your three kids. Mm -hmm. Well, we could have done that another way where the kids could stretch it out. The old stretch IRA is gone. We can't stretch that out over your lifetime, but you still have 10 years to clean that out and spread the taxes out at your ordinary income tax rate, not a trust. Which is most, let's be be honest, in in most of our situations, that's far more beneficial Mm -hmm. uh, tax rates. Even if it was a 24% tax rate, you're saving 13% of that distribution in taxes. That's a lot. I think if we're on a million dollars, let's just say it's $130,000 in taxes. That's a lot. Yeah. So you just made a $130,000 mistake for your heirs by putting the money into a trust. So that there was no hassle in transferring funds and so that it didn't go through probate and so that it wasn't a public event. But Jason, what have we been saying the whole time? (laughs) There's still a hassle. And here's another gotcha that people don't know about. A living trust can be contested just like a will. So... Let's say, and we see this all the time. Unfortunately, it's sad, uh, you know, if there, especially if there's no will. But even if there is, when somebody passes away and their heirs are distributing their stuff or figuring out what's happening while they, while they probate the whole estate, sometimes people don't get along. And if that happens and there's a living trust, your living trust is not going to stop that either. One sibling can contest the trust and it can cause a whole bunch of problems there too. I mean, let alone just the regular administration. You're talking to an attorney who work at approximately the speed of <laughs> something sloth, slow, a sloth. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all roses. Anybody, any attorney that tells you that it's going to be like the magic bullet to make your end of life the most streamlined time for everyone is they're just blowing smoke you won't be around to call them on it that's yeah. the problem and you won't and they'll be getting paid more <laughs> yeah. rather than if you just had most of your estate passed on yeah. with payable on death and you know what's not contestable a tod that's right and i'll tell you there are ways jason in my time at the bank i, I had a couple of interesting calls from attorneys actually in the last couple of years where uh, i was asked hey can you can you execute a an ira and a trust and there was one in particular where I think what happened was one of the beneficiaries was pretty sharp, right? And it didn't take long for them to see what was going on. Their father passed away. There were no special circumstances that, in my opinion, required a trust. Three siblings or whatever, equal beneficiaries. 
Everybody in the family got along. There were no issues. Um, they, they didn't have spending problems. They all did pretty well for, for themselves. Well, come to find out, uh, this attorney wrote up a trust and encouraged that this client put all of his assets in the trust or made the trust the beneficiary on everything. So this was not a client of mine currently, but what we were told was, here is an IRA uh, outside at this brokerage firm, and they won't execute this according to the trust. Okay. So basically what it came down to was they were asking us to go through according to the way the law was written up and basically distribute this to the trust, not pass through, not, not, you know, uh, have the taxable event occur immediately. The way that the law was spelled out, you technically could do it. I can tell you in practice, just because the law says you can do it doesn't mean that it's going to be executed. What overrides those situations would be the custodian that you're holding the funds at, how they're going to execute those disbursements. And in this case, this large broker dealer, second largest in the United States at the time, said the trust is the beneficiary and that's the only place that we can make this payable to. And that involves 1099s going out and taxes. Whatever they decide to do on their taxes is totally up to them, but it was triggering that taxable event. Mm -hmm. Come to find out as we dug into this a little bit more, there were also annuity contracts as well that were tied to that brokerage account. So when you called the annuity carriers, the insurance companies, what did they say? The only thing we can do is execute this exactly as the beneficiaries are worded, which means open a trust account, a trust account, and disperse the funds. It's going to be taxable. Yeah. And what this attorney found was he was really backed into a corner by a client who knew a little bit, just a little bit about this. And he probably had his own little lawsuit on his hands because it, be, it was very, very apparent what the objective was. Get paid to write the trust, get paid to manage the trust assets. And what he ended up doing was causing a lot of unnecessary taxes. Yeah, that's too bad. But we see that kind of thing all the time. People that don't need a trust have one. And it actually causes bad. And the idea is it's not, you know, it's harmless. It's a living trust. It can't hurt anybody. It can only help. That's not true necessarily. No, it can cost a lot more. Absolutely. It maybe it doesn't rob them. In a way, it kind of is. It's, I, I'm, maybe I should let myself get angry about it because I've seen them in really, it's really unfortunate because an attorney has a, a obligation, a moral obligation to be a fiduciary to work in the best interest of their client because they know so much more than they do. They know so much more than their client. And that just grinds my gears. It gets me <laughs> going, man, because I've, we've seen it quite a bit. And there's a lot of other things about trust that, that these living trusts that don't do what people just assume that they will. Um, they're a lot more expensive than a will. We said that. I'm just going to bust down a bunch of these that I have written down. You, are, you already said probate can often be avo avoided without the use of a living trust. And a lot of times, like you said, uh, not all of the assets got transferred to the trust in the first place. So the trustor will pay twice, setting up the level tru living trust and then pro probate because they had to do both anyway. This is a huge one, Caleb. A lot of people don't know. Living trusts do not protect your assets, assets from lawsuits and creditors. Also, Medicaid spend downs. Yeah. So a living trust is not a Medicaid spend down vehicle. You can possibly do that as long as you uh, are outside the look back period on an ir irrevocable, irrevocable <laughs> trust, <laughs> but not with a living trust. A living trust does not work for that. But it's a pretty popular reason why we see people with these trusts. That's right? what they, that's the second thing they think they're protecting yeah. their money from. And they, that does not work. Like you have to give up control of all of your assets for that to actually work. You're not and, giving up control in a revocable trust. No, in a, in a living trust like this, which is revocable, you still have 100% of the control. And here's a dirty thing that attorneys do that you were getting at. But let's just say we're going to call him a salesperson instead <laughs> of an attorney. But the reason that they're giving living trusts out or selling them is just so they can figure out what assets you have so that they can then sell you an annuity. <laughs> yeah, it happens. And these folks and sometimes these trust factories that just turn out trusts are really financial advisors, uh -huh. but they're bad at being an attorney and at being a financial advisor because they're really just swindling you. They're, they're getting you to get a trust so they can find out how much money you have so then they can sell you an annuity. Yeah, if you've been invited to a steak dinner to learn about trusts and end up with an index annuity, it's happening, folks. Yeah. Watch out. Yeah, your eyebrows should go up. So uh, I, that's good. I, I feel like we've bashed on living trust pretty well. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to throw in there about that? I, I think let's, let's quickly go through some scenarios where trusts are appropriate 
Okay. I mean, and I think really the spirit behind a trust in the first place, let's think of an example where Jason, let's maybe you have, you've got five kids and they're all young and, you know, sky's the limit. There's a lot of hope for them. But later on down the line, let's say you've got one who just can't be trusted with money. Yeah. And you want to take care of your kids when you pass. But you know that if your five kids get a lump of assets at your demise, four of them are going to be good stewards, but the other one's probably going to have a couple Lamborghinis and be in the poorhouse. <laughs> Maybe a reason for a trust. That's high say? praise that you think my kids are going to have enough to buy some <laughs> Lamborghinis with their inheritance. Well, you know, I'm just thinking time value of money, compounding. Yeah. Well, then I'm, gonna, I'm not dying for a very long a time. Very long Thank time. you. Thank you, my friend. Well, yeah, I think that's that's a really good reason. Reason if you if beneficiaries of the estate might become disabled or mm-hmm. incompetent or you just straight up don't trust them, if you want to control money after you're gone, a trust is a good way to do it. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. You you just kind of just kind of skated over one I was thinking about, like special needs trusts. Yeah. Obviously, and we're not here to trash all attorneys. There are a lot of great ones. There are the ones that sell trusts so they can sell you an annuity. Those bad. Those are bad, really bad, real awful bad. bad. Those, yeah, they need to go away. <laughs> but but yes, there are good reasons for having a trust. And that's why so many people have trusts that don't need them. Because people know there are good reasons to have a trust. Yeah, and those are two really big ones. A, a disabled beneficiary from the trust or just, just someone you don't quite trust. It, <laughs> and really, it's because you want to control the money after you're gone. But there's some other pragmatic ones okay. that I've got too. And they really have to do with your estate actually being kind of complicated. So here's a good reason to look into living trust. And, and that is because you have property in multiple states. Mm-hmm. You're going to be dealing with two different probate law codes. Code C, I don't know that Tax much about codes? Law. Is that right? Yeah. And the probate rules are different state yeah. to state. So if you have property in a, another state or you spend a significant amount of time in a different state uh, where, where probate, the probate courts are a big pain, and I don't know this for sure, but I just have a feeling that California is the worst place <laughs> be, to right? probate stuff. <laughs> so if you have like that sort of thing going on, uh, a living trust might actually save you some time. Um, or if you did want to create other trusts inside your living trusts that don't require court supervision, we're getting really complicated. And really with these, like they're very special circumstances. The average person does not need a living trust. By the average person, the average person that we have seen as a client. So let's say they're around retirement age. They got a net worth of one or two million dollars. Well, investable assets of one or two million dollars. And their net worth is probably under the estate tax threshold. They usually do not need a trust. But that those are some reasons where you should maybe think about getting one. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about abuse of these trusts being the, the product of, of sales tactics. We've talked a little bit about when they actually can apply and make sense. We just don't see it every day. All that being said, Jason, you know my, my situation pretty well. Do I need a trust? No. Okay. Listener, you probably don't need a trust. You probably do not need a trust. Instead of a trust, what should people do? Well, we've got some alternatives. We've talked about them uh, you know, kind of sporadically throughout the podcast here, but um, I, I go back to POD and TOD designations. That's payable on death, transfer on death. Basically, having updated beneficiary designations on your accounts, it's the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's honestly the cleanest thing to do. Yeah. We have all had clients. We, I, I say all. I mean the three of us here who have passed away. And proper beneficiary designations make for the easiest transitions. Introducing the complication of a trust sometimes when not necessary, it's just adding headache when it's meant to uh, alleviate a situation. So POD and TOD designations are the first thing. I, sh- I should say actually the second thing because a will is probably the first thing. Yeah, I, that's true. A will is number one. You need a will. And that should inform what your beneficiaries are listed as mm-hmm. on all of your accounts. So the will will be the main governing document. That you need to have. I, I know we've talked about it before. You're going to die. You need a will. I mean, unless Jesus comes back. But even then, it's probably good to have a will. I'm all right with it. Um, you, you, you need to get a will. It's the responsible thing to do. If anybody out there in the world at all is counting on you, or you just love the people that will be taking care of your estate, you should have a will. Just a clear will. What if you don't? Don't die? Don't love the people that will be handling Well, this. then a good way to make their life miserable <laughs> is to not have a will. Okay. Uh, but you can do a will. They're not that expensive and they're worth every penny. So do the will. And then I wanted to chime in on the beneficiaries just to give a quick list for folks that are listening. Things that are very common that you can put beneficiaries on are your bank accounts, are your retirement accounts, are your investment accounts. Things that aren't as common are your property, deeds for houses. It depends on the state. Cars, depends on the state. 
everything else is pretty much going to be handled by your will. The only other thing I would add there is sometimes it's appropriate to take advantage of joint account titling, especially if you are married. <laughs> we talked about the financial infidelity episode yeah. and, and budgeting. Whenever we're talking about when you when you have a spouse, take advantage of joint accounts. You, you don't want to accidentally disinherit a spouse if something yeah. happens to you. And I've seen some really kooky things, too, where accounts are titled a certain way. And I understand what the client was thinking when they set up their beneficiaries. I've seen it on annuity contracts where, you know, you might have an IRA. You have an account that's, let's say, even a a joint account that it's assumed that the spouse would take over, but the annuitant is set up differently, whatever. We've Mm -hmm. all seen those kinds of things. You end up accidentally disinheriting a spouse, and now there's an income stream going to kids, and the spouse needs money. Right. Um, So those are things that you need to keep an eye on. Proper designations, joint account titling when necessary, a will. Those are easy things. I think we've beat this one to death, Jason. No way, man. <laughs> we get it. We should do more specific episodes on it in the future, probably. Yeah, we haven't exhausted all trusts. I think we got our feelings out today, though, on this one. I don't know. I still feel I still feel agitated. You got a lot of feels? <laughs> okay. I got a lot of feels. Should we distill it down for our listeners? I think we should, Jason. If you were going to summarize our, our podcast today... Just briefly, what are some things to look out for? Keep in mind. All right. Number one, you probably do not need a trust. That's right. the number one thing that we want to get out there. I mean, that's that's the title of this danged episode after all. Uh, you don't need a trust most likely. If somebody of an attorney or anybody suggests that you need a living trust, your radar should be going off. You need to be very aware. You may need one, but it, it needs to be proved that you actually do need one. And we went through all of those reasons that are put forth for why you might need one that actually aren't very good reasons. So you probably don't need a trust. That's the number one thing I want people to know from this episode. So I think, is it fair to move on to calls to action? Yeah. Calls to action. I would say if, if it's being proposed that you need to drop a trust, here's some calls to action. One, I would say talk to other people who are informed in your finances, like your financial advisor. I, I want to be careful, but the people that work at your bank and things like that, and just make sure that your situation justifies a trust. Explore the other alternatives. I'd get a second opinion. Yeah. I'd go to another attorney too. That's great. I yeah. think that's always worth doing. But I, I think that exhausting those alternatives that we talked about, like Absolutely. TOD and TOD designations and wills and joint account titling, can we do the same thing with things that we already have at our disposal? That's what I would say. I think that's a great call to action. Get a, get a, get a second opinion. Bring your financial advisor in. Get some good financial advice on it. So what if you bought one of these trusts, Jason, and you realize, hey, maybe I was sold a bill of goods here and I don't really need it. What would you encourage those folks to do in that situation? Kind of the same thing. I'd get a second opinion from another attorney and I would talk to your financial advisor. In a revocable trust, a living trust can be undone. Yeah, it can be dissolved. Yeah, you can dissolve it. You can take all your stuff back. You can set up payable on death, transfer on death if you want to. And you can have it all undone and you can have the will govern everything. And, and that's an option. So just do the same thing as if you uh, are being pressured to get one. Yeah, it's possible to simplify for your beneficiaries. And I always say, if you're going to do them a favor, do them a favor. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Jason, I think it's time to move on to listener feedback. Here's something from the beef guy. (laughs) Learning while laughing. Uh, I may be a bit biased, but these guys seem to always find a way to get me to laugh and learn at the same time. Nice. I came on on, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcast. That's what it's called now. Apple Podcast, right? Uh, Yeah. That's awesome. Hopefully came with a five-star review or uh, rating. (laughs) That'd be great. I'd love that. Rotoman22. Rotoman? It's probably Rotoman. (laughs) Rotoman22 says... A good listen. The two hosts provide some informative information in a funny and relatable way. Jason, they think we're funny. I, that is, I mean, we're trying so hard. <laughs> so hard to be funny. That's great. Thanks a lot. We had a lot of feedback, actually. The speakeasy is lighting up this week. Yeah. Another one from Dave says, enjoying these podcasts, my friends. Keep it up. That's awesome. And Serena and Ryan had a lengthy and great Great feedback that they posted in the, in the speakeasy with some video accompanying it. Yeah. I So before you read this one, I would encourage everybody out there that's listening to this show, enjoying this show. Maybe you're following us on Facebook. Get in the speakeasy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're having a lot of fun there talking about drinks and finance and all of the above. Sometimes just shenanigans. I would definitely go and check this out because what Serena and Ryan put in there was just, it's awesome. I want to see more of it. 
It's just great. There, you got to go check it out. They did a video of a thing we were talking about, and I'd only imagined it in my mind and with Google Images. And it was got better than them. I imagined. Then they got to see them spinning around. So Serena and Ryan say, love the call out in your Vukare episode. So in all my time, I've been down here in New Orleans and had drinks at Carousel Bar, one of the most unique bars in NOLA, IMO. I've never actually had a Vukare. Of course, I had to change that. So Ryan and I made a stop last weekend to check it out for ourselves. Don't hate me. But I'm not the whiskey drinker in the family. We don't hate you. Ryan is and has made it his hobby to be somewhat of a whiskey connoisseur and has made it his mission to convert me. But even though whiskey is not my first liquor of choice, I have to say I actually thoroughly enjoyed this cocktail. I was pleasantly surprised by how smooth it was. Definitely a cocktail I could sip while enjoying the overall company and atmosphere at Carousel Bar. Let me know if you ever plan a trip down. I would love to help map out some must-stop places in the city. Jason, that's going to be a must. We got to get to Nolens soon. I got to go there. My wife went there and she's she just she still talks about it. So we're all we're going to go. You know, we thought about it when we took our little Mississippi trip. Kind of wishing we would have notched out a little bit more time and hit New Orleans, but uh, I guess another excuse to uh, hit the road, buddy. What do you think? All right, I'm for it. <laughs> I'm for it. Okay, well, thanks for having a drink with us this week, folks. It's time to close out the tab. If you have a question or a topic you want addressed on the Old Fashioned Finance Podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with all of the latest action by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation.